0: Good morning, Veritas. Glad that you've joined us this morning to worship. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of opening to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, you can turn on your phone there or open your Bible there. Uh, but before we open Genesis, I uh, want to just announce, from the Advent offering last week that we took, uh, 492,963 dollars and20 cents. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. And it's so humbling to be a part of such an awesome church because that number represents a lot of generosity, a lot of sacrifice, and God's people just keep stepping up. So we're humbled, thankful, and hopeful for the days to come. I mean, what, what does God have for us? Our story's just beginning. So um, we're going to open Genesis 37 this morning. And before we do, Just to give you some background, we remember last week, Ryan spoke on Jacob, this deceiver guy that wrestled with God. He he prevailed, which probably means he survived. He came out with a blessing and a limp, and he's walking out with the sun, God's face shining on him as he limps away from this encounter with God. Well, this... This man, Jacob, had 12 sons, one daughter. And our story, the last 14 chapters of Genesis, it follows the journey of one of Jacob's sons. His name is Joseph. So this is the story of Joseph. We'll start in Genesis 37, verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. And he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up And your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. I'll jump down to verse 18. So before we read this, so I, I mean, just the obvious response to this from his brothers would be jealousy but you might not expect what's about to happen. Pretty extreme response to their favored brother. Verse 18, they saw him in the distance. So his dad told him, hey, go check on your brothers. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors he had on. When they took him and threw him into the pit, the pit was empty without water. They sat down to eat a meal. And when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. For he's our brother, our own flesh, and his, and his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. And then the chapter ends with Jacob hearing the news of his son. And his, his boys hand him this robe of many colors, and there he is weeping into this blood-soaked robe. So I wanna stop here and just review some of the characters here. We've got Jacob. Jacob, this, this father of 13 children from two wives and two concubines. These would be like mistresses that, that lived with him. So Joseph is his favorite son from his favorite wife, Rachel. And this, he hands him this robe of many colors, which is, is basically him handing over authority of the family to this young man. Joseph's like 17 at this time. And so this would be the equivalent of like, Uh, Maybe he makes him the, the executor or power of attorney, whatever. Maybe even probably more than that. He's like the leader of the family now. The brothers, think about the brothers. Filled with jealousy, their response is to murder their brother. But actually, just before they're about to murder him, they come up with this, hey, he's worth more. Alive than dead. So greed trumps murder, and they sell him into slavery. Think about Joseph. At 17 years old, this guy is, he's a bright young man. Incredible character. A good kid, right? Promising future. And as his dad holds that robe, just grieves the loss of this son who has died too soon. Genesis 37 takes us to the pit of despair at this point. And I think we need to live here in the story for a minute because at this point in the story, this is terrible in every possible way. There is nothing good about this story. This total dysfunctional home, it's a hot mess, right? The deceiver Jacob has now been deceived by his sons. And they took all of his failures as a father to the next level. Chips off the old block. Okay, well, let's follow Joseph. What happens to our victim, Joseph? After this, look at chapter 39, verse one. Now, Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. All right, so who brought Joseph into slavery? if If you were to answer this question, how did Joseph get here? If we're trying to find somebody to blame, who would we blame to this point? You could blame his father, you could blame his brothers with their evil plan. They're probably the most to blame, right? Or you could blame the Ishmaelites. What are they doing? Trafficking slaves at this point. A lot of bad people we could point the finger at, but look at what it says, verse two. This is chapter 39, verse two. But the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Verse three, the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything he did successful. Verse four, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all he owned. A new character is introduced to the story. Who's this character? God. This story has God woven throughout the whole thing. If we're gonna blame anyone... We have to look up and see God. It's like he's writing this story, the story of Joseph's life. And if we missed this in in chapter 37, there were some breadcrumbs in our text that we read earlier that I want to point out that show God's role in every little detail of Joseph's life. So Jacob and his family lived in this town called Hebron. Hebron is is near uh, the Dead Sea, okay? Jacob, it says, he sent Joseph up to check on his brothers up in Shechem. Shechem is a town like 50 miles away. I'd be like, hey, go, go check on your brothers over in Davenport or up in Waterloo or something like that, right? It's a, it's a long distance he had to go. So he goes up to Shechem. The brothers are not there. Where are the brothers? The brothers are in this little town called Dothan, so he finds them, and that's like 15 miles away from Shechem. Imagine all the wandering Joseph did to find his brothers, asking him, Where did you see these guys? Oh yeah, they're up in Dothan. He gets up there to Dothan, and that's where he's betrayed. But Dothan just so happens to be a merchant trade route down to Egypt. So he happens to be sold into slavery, is taken down to Egypt, on this trade route, he ends up, where does he end up? Of all places, in the palace of a royal official, of pharaoh named Potiphar. Potiphar's name means the one placed on earth by the god Ra. Okay, so what, what the writer is telling us, he lands in this guy's house, whose name is, God put this guy here. We're supposed to see that God is orchestrating the events of Joseph's life, which is what makes chapter 39 so troubling. It's hard to imagine, but at this point, Joseph's story gets even worse. Here's what happens in chapter 39. I'll summarize. Joseph Joseph is the the ultimate servant. He's one of the godliest characters in the Bible. If you're doing a character sketch, uh, you can, we could do sermons on Joseph's character. And one of them is what happens in Potiphar's house. It says in 39.6 that Joseph is well-built and handsome. He's a good-looking dude. Potiphar's wife is attracted to him. And so she, day after day, is trying to have an affair with Joseph. And at one point, she kind of corners him. And she gets so angry because he runs away from her. And as he's running away, she grabs his jacket and rips it off of him. Okay, now what's with Joseph and all his jackets, his robes? (laughs) They're getting him into a lot of trouble. I don't know what's with that. But she's got his jacket as evidence that he tried to sexually assault her. And so he's falsely accused is thrown into another dark pit. I just feel like as I was reading this, like congratulations Joseph on honoring the Lord. Well done, here's your reward. How about another pit of despair? Wave after wave of injustice and suffering. Joseph is 13 when he's, or 17 when he's betrayed. He spends 13 years in this prison and it gets worse from prison. And yeah, that's hard to imagine. God's with him in prison and here's what happens. Remember, he can interpret dreams. God's given him this gift. So in prison, he meets a couple guys who are royal officials of Pharaoh's. His cupbearer and baker, basically Pharaoh's butler and head chef are in prison with Joseph. And while they're in, in this dungeon, these guys have, have dreams. And Joseph interprets their dreams. The cupbearer ends up getting out, and Joseph says, Please remember me and mention me to Pharaoh. Well, what do you think happens? Does the cupbearer remember to mention Joseph? No. Two years go by. Two years. And Pharaoh has a dream and the cupbearer's like, you know what? There was a guy in prison that I met that interprets dreams. So he pulls this guy out and I just want to stop there. I'm just, I just want us to pause at this darkest point of Joseph's life. Because we have gone from a favored son to betrayed by brothers into slavery. We've gone from prison to palace in Potiphar's house. And now we've gone from palace back to prison where we sit in darkness and suffering. I think that Joseph's life can best be described as a wrestling match. Now, we, this, is, this is a little different from last week's because I, I wanna ask this question. Um, I didn't grow up a wrestler, so I didn't know anything about wrestling until my, my sons, some of my sons started getting into wrestling. How many of you don't really know anything about wrestling? I just want to know who's, who's in our audience. Like, so a lot of you, a lot of you, okay? Um, and since you're in Iowa, you should know something about wrestling, like the wrestling capital of the world right here, Iowa City area. So um, uh, let me just explain something to you about wrestling, if you didn't know this. It's an excruciating sport. It's terrible, right? Because it's kind of a sport of predicaments. That's basically what it is. Like if you're like describe wrestling, I'm like in the sport of wrestling, you're constantly in a situation. Like we have a situation on my hand on our hands, right? My somehow my arm got twisted in a weird position that I didn't even know an arm could bend that way, twisted up like a pretzel, right? It's a, it's excruciating to to watch as a parent, my kids are constantly coming home, black eyes, sprained ligaments, broken bones, it's crazy, it's crazy. It's constantly filled with difficult, unpleasant, painful, even embarrassing situations in front of a crowd of people. But here's the thing about wrestling, it's actually an amazing sport because of what it produces in the heart and the mind of the person wrestling. Because it produces some mental toughness. If you ever met a wrestler, it's like they are just like a rock inside. right? They, they understand perseverance and never giving up I was talking to Joe Teague. He's one of my boys' coaches. They got some awesome coaches. My seventh grader, Jet, his, his coach, Coach Jackson Litter is awesome. And Jackson Brown and Joe Teague from Veritas. And Joe wrestled at Iowa State. So he's a pretty elite wrestler. And I, want, I went up to Joe and I wanted some advice from Joe. Because I, I, you know, I don't know anything about wrestling, but I want to go to my boys and like give them some coaching. You know? So I go to Joe and I'm like, hey Joe, like, tell me something I need to know about wrestling. I, What's some, like the most important advice you can give to a young wrestler? And this is what he said. Now, little did he know, he wasn't giving me wrestling advice. He was giving me an illustration for my sermon. So it's great. He said this. He said, Mark, there's one thing a wrestler needs to be thinking about at all times. At every single moment in the match, there's one question that they should be thinking about. And it's this, how do I score from this position that I'm in? Because this position, it might be a good position, it might be a bad position, but here's the thing about wrestling, there's always a way to score. And so the question is, how do I score from this position? Now, until the match is over, no matter what position you're in, no matter how good or hopeless it seems, there's always a way to score. I found this out a couple weeks ago, beginning of the wrestling season. One of our very own Veritas youth, Max Carlson, senior at CCA. He was wrestling, and he was down in the third period, which that's the last period. Time was ticking down, and he was down 14 to zero. Now if you know that's really bad because if they get 15 points on you, it's like a tech fall. That means that's really bad. It's it's you don't want to lose by a tech fall. It's not quite as bad as being pinned, but it's just under it. And he's on his back, squirming around, time's ticking down, and and party is like, just just give up, Max. I mean just let him just Let him put you out of your misery, right? But no, Max is a wrestler. He would never do that. He's squirming around and this, seconds are ticking down and he turns the guy over, turns him over onto his back. And we're like, what, what, what? Pins the guy. With seconds left, the crowd erupts. You guys, I thought I was looking around for cameras because I thought I was on a Hallmark movie. Like, this does not happen. You can search YouTube and probably never find someone come back from 14-0 with seconds left. Max turned him, pinned him, won the match. It was amazing. I feel like that is a story of Joseph's life. And I think that about summarizes the Christian life, isn't it? We find ourselves in all kinds of situations and predicaments. Some of them because something stupid that we had, have done. We kind of deserve to be on our back. Other times, it's because of something stupid that someone else did to us. Or not stupid, evil. Evil. But the big question is, how do we score from this position? I, I think about that. Think of the situation that you are in right now in your life. How are you going to score from that position you find yourself in? Like, what? Well, what does it mean to score? As a follower of Jesus, well, Joseph tells us how to score. So Pharaoh has a dream, okay? The cupbearer remembers Joseph. Joseph interprets this dream that Pharaoh has. He says, hey, Pharaoh, this is a prophecy about the next 14 years of what's gonna happen in Egypt. There's gonna be seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. And Joseph rolls out this brilliant economic game plan to prosper during this 14-year period. So Pharaoh sees this guy as a genius, and he's a good man. So he puts him in charge of all of Egypt. So here we are from prison back to the palace. So we get to the seven years of famine. And guess who shows up in Joseph's presence begging for food? Guess who comes walking into the palace with their tail between their legs looking for help? You got it. Those brothers who betrayed him. Look at chapter 45 to this encounter with Joseph's brothers. Chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said. The one you sold into Egypt. And now... Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. And in chapter 46, verse 29, we see that Joseph presented himself to his dad, threw his arms around him and wept for a long time. Did you catch that? What Joseph just said to his brothers. Three times God sent me here. God sent me here. God sent me here. Sent me here. Don't be angry with yourselves. I suffered but it's all good because God used my suffering for your deliverance and the deliverance of our people, Israel. Isn't that the gospel? Jesus suffered for our salvation. And think about the family that Joseph suffered for. It was a dysfunctional, messed up family. And Joseph's like, it's all good because I got to save them. Sinful people. Jesus is the better Joseph. God sent Jesus to die for us. And here's the question. Who killed Jesus It was kind of us, right? It was kind of the Roman authorities, kind of the Jewish leaders, our sin. But it was mostly God, right? Look at Isaiah 53, verse 6. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53:10, "Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely." It's hard to believe that those verses are even in the Bible. Who killed Jesus on the cross? How did that happen? God did it. And why did God, the Father do it? 53, verse five. His punishment brought our peace. By his wounds, we are healed. That's the story of Joseph's life. It's the gospel. It's the good news. And the way Genesis ends is chapter 50, verse 19. It's one of the most amazing verses. It's almost like the proclamation of the gospel Here, right here in the Old Testament. It almost seems like this belongs in the New Testament, but the way Genesis ends is beautiful. Chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus does for us. We do terrible things to other people. And what is the response of Jesus? He comforts us and takes care of us. He doesn't scream at us. He doesn't yell at us. When we come humbly to him, he receives us. He deals gently with his sheep. When we look at Joseph's life from every position, from every predicament, prison or palace, Joseph scored. And what does it mean to score as a Christian? It means to glorify God. The question that should always be in our minds at every moment, in every circumstance, is how do I glorify God in this situation that I find myself in? Well, what does it mean to glorify God? That's a big word, right? Just glorify God, let's pray. You might like, can you be more specific on that? Yeah, let's be more specific. The first thing, and just a few points here of application is that scoring, here's what scoring means as a Christian. Scoring means transferring your trust to Jesus Christ. Transferring your trust to Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, in this life, you're gonna face a lot of stuff you don't understand. People are gonna do bad things to you. You're going to do bad things to other people. But here's the thing. The number one thing you need to settle in your heart. Why did this bad thing happen to me or this person that I love? If you don't settle this question, you will never get over it. And it's this question is, can I entrust my suffering and my life to Jesus Christ? And when you surrender the lordship of your life, lordship is like, I'm the boss, I get it, I'm in charge. When you give up being in charge and you give that over to Jesus, that's when everything in your life changes. Your entire perspective on why all these things are happening. It completely changes. And what you find is that if God can bring meaning out of Jesus' suffering, like we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened one time on the cross. And God used that for the salvation of the world. If God can bring meaning out of his suffering, You'll have no trouble bringing meaning out of yours. Do you trust him to do that? And here's the thing that makes the Christian life different from wrestling. Is it in wrestling you get, can get pinned and it's over. Or you can pin someone and it's over. But for us, the moment the referee slaps their hand on the mat and says, "It's over? For us, it's just beginning because death gives way to life. The worst possible predicament, death, is just the beginning for us. And Jesus said this to Martha in John 11. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live and never die. Martha, do you believe this? So I ask you this morning, do you believe this? Because if you believe in the resurrection, you're going to be good with any tangled up, twisted up position you find yourself in. Because you're like, oh, he'll sort it all out. I'm going to live forever. Jesus is Lord. I trust him. So point number one, scoring means transferring your trust to Jesus Christ in whatever situation you find yourself in. Second thing, scoring means forgiveness. If you don't believe that God is in charge of all the events of your life and of the world right now, if you don't believe that, you will never be able to forgive people. But if you're like Joseph and you just trust that God is smarter than you, like, I believe that God always has a bigger thing going on than what I understand. As I'm getting hauled down that slave merchant trade route down to Egypt, I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it Why I'm here in shackles. I I don't understand this. But somehow God will make sense of all this, and he did. (laughs) Joseph didn't know that he was gonna save his own family. Save many lives. This morning, I just think that God is inviting us to walk to these communion tables, just bringing our unsolved mysteries of our life, bringing our suffering, bringing our questions and just be like, nah, I don't get it. But thank you, Jesus. And at that moment, when you take communion and you just receive the forgiveness of Jesus, that just unleashes forgiveness and grace and love toward other people in your life. And in this story, there's a lot of tears, isn't there? A lot of weeping. And it doesn't mean that the emotional kind of hurt just like goes away. Like, oh, I, I'm great now. I never lay in bed thinking about it anymore because I've forgiven them. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean you will the good of the person you've forgiven. And you can speak kindly and you can comfort. That's what it says Joseph did. Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly. You can do that as a Christian. Because that's what Jesus did for you. So, forgiveness. How do I score from this position? How do I give grace and forgive in this position? That's what we should be thinking about. Finally, scoring means patient endurance. He never knew how things were gonna turn out, but Joseph was faithful where he was. I wonder what his prayer life looked like in those prisons, in those dark dungeons. Joseph continuing to seek the Lord, trust the Lord, wait patiently, patient endurance. What's the opposite of patient endurance? Impatient outrage, (laughs) quitting, right? Anger, bitterness, control, manipulation. But God is calling us in whatever circumstance we find to patiently endure, to replace control with prayer. To replace our outrage and anger and bitterness with a quiet trust in the Lord because we know God is smarter than us. We know he's stronger than us. We believe that our life is not an accident. And it's not an accident that you're here right now hearing this message. So, do you trust God with the circumstances of your life? What situation are you in right now? And how will you in this situation glorify God? Let's pray together. Jesus, there's so much that this text draws out of us, so many emotions as we reflect on our lives. Situations we've been in, maybe, there's, maybe it draws out some gratitude, like, wow, God, you saved me. You brought me out of the dungeon into the palace. Or maybe it's just tears because we're still, maybe we went, From prison, we just went from palace to prison. We're just in a situation right now of just some deep pain. And I want to pray for those people right now that God, as they come to the table, as they receive grace from you, that a miracle would happen in their hearts. The miracle of the gospel and it would just grow love and grace to the people around them God we we read this story and and it's it's an ancient story but it's our story this morning and so we we come come to the cross and we come because you call us to come thank you Lord Amen.